Norfolk Southern is delivering a low carbon economy, which benefits everyone. We're providing customers a way to significantly reduce their supply chain transportation emissions and improve air quality in our communities. As the first class one railroad to offer green bonds, I can tell you, we're not just in the business of moving freight. We are in the business of a better planet. There is over a trillion dollars of waste in supply chains today. The net zero carbon emission is something that corporates are taking very seriously. To meet these objectives, they're going to have to take into consideration CO2 emissions. Welcome to Net Zero Carbon, the show of FreightWaves, where we focus on insights, inspiration, and information and sustainability around transportation. I'm Danny Gomez, your host, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Josh Raglin from Norfolk Southern. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me. We are definitely follow the show and are glad supporter of it. Yeah, it's been great to have your support. Um, it's been an interesting journey for me. You know, I'm fairly new to transportation. I've known freight waves for some time, but I've been jumping in and really, you know, it's been a journey for me in understanding and really seeing what are the ways, the immediate ways that we can be more sustainable as um, as an industry and, you know, peeling back the layers. It's been interesting to come across rail as really this um, immediate um, solution, not only for sustainability, but as we talk, you know, for efficiency, for reliability. And, you know, it's been, I'm really excited today because we've, we've scratched the surface um, with previous conversations and I really am eager to dig in a little deeper. Before we jump in, it'd be great to understand um, for, for everyone who's listening and tuning in um, your background. I think you have a really close tie to the environment. So um, love to hear more about that. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, yeah, I've been with uh, Norfolk Southern 25 years this month, and uh, my background prior to the railroad was uh, wildlife research and consulting. And uh, I've worked for two, dec two decades with Norfolk Southern, kind of doing nature-based solutions, a lot of ecosystem management, uh, conservation work. So it's really taking that background of conservation and then applying that to a much larger scale uh, to the railroad industry. In your role, um, you know, becoming the chief sustainability officer at Norfolk Southern, is that a more recently, when was that change made? That was about a year and a half ago. So it started right at the beginning of COVID. So it's been interesting, uh, interesting time to take a position move and also uh, move to Atlanta as well. But no, it's been it's been an enjoyable uh, change, really uh, taking advantage of the relationships I've made across various departments at Norfolk Southern and also with our customer base as well. So taking advantage of those relationships as we further you know drive sustainability uh, throughout the organization. I'll say um, your ESG report is something worth reading for everyone who's tuned in. It has a lot of great information on sustainability, but just ESG as a whole, um, you know, really appreciate all of the, you know, the facets that you guys dive into on there. And so today we will be focused on sustainability, but you guys are doing, um, it's worth mentioning that you guys are doing amazing things on all other sides of ESG too. So we appreciate that. You know, when I, start to understand a little bit about the rail um, industry. Um, I think it's helpful for, for everyone to have kind of a baseline knowledge. Do you mind just describing for us um, what class one rail companies, how it fits into the transportation network that is in North America and beyond and how Norfolk Southern really ties into that overall landscape? Yes, yeah, so you've got the seven, the seven largest railroads we call class ones. Uh, you've got two in the East, two in the Western United States. Uh, two in Canada that come down the Mississippi River area, and then you've got Kansas City Southern. So those seven operate around 140,000 route miles across the U.S. Uh, Norfolk Southern, we operate just over 19,000 route miles, and we're in the eastern 22 states. 
um, the railroad, the freight railroads in the U.S. Uh, there's over 600 short lines as well, I might, might add. Uh, but the freight railroads in the U.S. Uh, move around 40% of all freight ton miles, but only account for 2% of all transportation-related emissions, uh, which is really important. You know, that's even more important now, and it's more important to our customers as well. That is really important. I think that's, you know, as we talk again about these immediate um, efficiencies that are in the marketplace, and how efficiency is always are very closely linked to emission reductions. Um, it's, it's really interesting to see, I think, what we've heard from a lot of um, shippers and, and carriers is that they're trying to stress that asset, um, you know, the rail asset that is, and seeing how much freight they can move over. You know, I think one of the interesting things for, for me is watching these firms, or at least talking to these firms and understanding how they are picking these low-hanging fruit. And it's, it's always interesting, I think, the, the dynamic that we look for is something that's familiar um, easily to easy to implement and scalable, and it feels like rail fits all of those categories. It's something that people have been doing for a while. You know, it is. It really is a low hanging fruit. You know, you know, a lot of our customers are looking at that option even more so now uh, with their own climate, you know, and carbon reduction goals. Uh, you know, rail on average is seventy five percent less emissions than truck, and so that doesn't take uh, new technology. It doesn't take alternative fuels. It's available now, and that's becoming more and uh, more critical. Uh, for a lot of our customers as they're starting to really focus on, on scope three emissions. It, and you mentioned something there, which is interesting, where um, the low-hanging fruit, you know, even traditional rail as we think of it, but rail isn't stopping there, right? It seems like there is just a bevy of um, innovation and and really investment in reducing and being becoming more, um, more efficient in rail. Can you just describe what are some of the things that that you see there happening kind of more broadly across the industry? Um, and then what are you, or what do you feel like is happening at Norfolk Southern that you feel like are the, you know, the roadmap for getting to, you know, we may not get to net zero um, alone, but, you know, getting it as close as we can um, to net zero. Yeah. I think what's really interesting about the freight rail sector in the U S Danny is that all seven of the class one roads have committed to science-based target for emission reduction. Um, if you look across all sectors of the world, you won't find any sector that's that committed. And so we're all committed to uh, doing our part. You know, for NS, that's going to be a, a 42% reduction in carbon intensity over a 15-year period. So uh, that's a substantial reduction in carbon intensity. Um, the good news is 2019 was our baseline year. Uh, and last year, we made a 7% improvement alone. And that was driven 5% by fuel efficiency improvements. And then the other 2% was primarily attributed to uh, tripling our use of biofuels. And so that's an option for us as well. So at the rail level, it really takes industry collaboration. I mean, we depend on the manufacturers. We don't make locomotives. We don't make fuel. So we really have to partner with our supply chain uh, to drive progress. And we're doing that. You know, our, the manufacturers have taken notice. Uh, we're partnering with them to understand, well, what's the technology that's available right now? What's in the near term? What's kind of five to 10 years out? And then what's that locomotive of the future look like? You know, 15, 20 years out, if we were able to develop a zero emissions locomotive, that's hydrogen, ammonia, methanol. I think there's a number of opportunities that are worth exploring. And so a lot of the focus right now is on research. You know, what are the pilot projects? What are the things we think are going to be the most likely path uh, for the rail industry? Um, you know, we share, we share locomotives, we share trains across our, our networks. So we have to have a technology or fuel or whatever it ends up being 
that's interoperable. And so that's really important for our industry. Uh, and we also don't turn our assets. You know, we, our locomotive lasts 30 to 50 years. It's not like we're turning our assets over, you know, every five years, like some of the trucking companies are. So if we invest in something, we need to know that this is investment is going to be worthwhile. And this is where the industry is headed. Where do you see um, EV playing into all of this? I mean, it's hard not to read through transportation and have EV pop up. And I think the more um, the more that gets published about EV, the, the more you see that there is, a, there is a constraint on infrastructure, at least on the road side of things, right? How does EV play into rail? You know, I think if we think of an electrification of the rail network, it would be extremely expensive. I'm not saying it's not possible, uh, maybe along some of the, the heavy corridors, particularly in locations where utilities need more transmission lines. You know, if you could come up with a win-win solution uh, that was financially feasible, there maybe is a solution there long-term. I think the challenge with our utility grid right now in the U.S. is we're still 60% fossil fuels. So even if you transfer to that, uh, you know, we think the better alternatives in low-carbon fuels. Uh, we started a working group at the Association of American Railroads uh, almost a year ago now, looking at low-carbon fuel technology, what those opportunities are. And this group is now transformed into a, a decarbonization working group. And it's really focused on research and policy. You know, what is the research that we think is worthwhile funding and what sort of policy changes do we need uh, to take place? So that's really kind of where we're focused right now. I think if we think about the near term from a fuel perspective, um, biodiesel is a great option for the railroads. Uh, the two locomotive manufacturers in the U.S. approve up to a 5% blend. One of them recently, recently upped that to 20%. So that's going to give us an op opportunity there uh, to further use biofuels, which helps reduce our carbon footprint. You know, longer term, uh, you know, I think it's going to be renewable fuels is a good bridge, bridge, uh, right, bridge fuel for us. Um, California, Washington, Oregon, they both have, they all three have low carbon fuel standards. You know, they're supporting the refiners in making this product. Right now, it's about three and a half times more expensive. But with the low carbon fuel standard, it makes it affordable. So we've got at least six states in our territory that are con considering low carbon fuel standards. Uh, New York State will most likely be the first to do that. So if you have a state level or maybe even a federal policy that changes, that further incentivizes the production of the fuel, I think that's really going to be uh, the future for us. Do you mind just diving in um, for those who don't have the benefit of knowing what a LCFS program really entails and how that provides incentive back to um, a rail company like yourself? Yeah, so it, uh, it basically provides those tax incentives back to the to the refiners uh, for producing the product, which ends up they can lower the cost, uh, the retail cost of that product. Uh, it, it's really a tremendous uh, savings. Uh, on, you know, on the fuel front, if you think of biodiesel versus renewable diesel, there's a lot of confusion there. Uh, they're actually made from similar feedstocks, uh, but there's a different process. So the uh, the biofuel process is esterification, and so your enemy ends up being water. And so that's why the blends, they're only allowing a 20% blend. Renewable diesel, on the other hand, is a hydrocarbon. So it's produced very similar to petroleum-based uh, diesel. It has very similar properties, and you can actually go up to 100% blend there which that can reduce carbon intensity anywhere between 50 and 90%, depending on the feedstock. So there's a huge opportunity to reduce uh, carbon intensity going forward. So you guys feel like that is the, the next, and as we look again at that roadmap, renewable fuel sounds like a great, a great um, introduction. And then beyond that, um, is there a chance for battery powered locomotive? I mean, where, 
is there is there an a net zero um, goal here. And, I, and some of the renewable fuels may get you there, right? Some of them can get you to even negative, right? Where do you where do you see nets? How do we get to net zero? Yeah, so we are, have been looking at battery technology. We actually made a yard switcher some 15 years ago that was made of, of you know all batteries. And that was before the battery technology that we have today. So there are battery opportunities out there, um, particularly at the yard and local level where these units are in operation, maybe 20 hours a day but they have enough downtime that they can recharge their service. So that's an opportunity we're looking at for yard and local service. I think if you're thinking about the road fleet, it's going to be very difficult uh, to integrate that. Uh, WabTech recently did some testing in California with a unit, and it was a, a, a consist of three engines, two diesel powered and one electric version. And the electric version, it really takes uh, topography, changing route, because when it's going downhill, it recharges the batteries through the braking, through capturing the energy. Uh, that showed 11%, you know, improvement in fuel efficiency, uh, which is okay. But is it worth the cost? You know, they're they're going to redo that one. They think they're going to get twice as much, maybe up to 22%. And so then you're talking some significant savings that maybe you could justify the cost at some point. So it could be a hybrid. The challenge with that is what route are you going to stick it on? It has to be a route that has that topographical change uh, that makes sense. That's interesting. Um, yeah, we definitely want to dig in more on the locomotive side, and I think we'll probably look to have someone on um, to speak about that in the future as well. You know, when you look at the connection um, between road and rail and um, transloading as as near, I think in your ESG report, you even commented on switching to biofuels or even um, the use of electric in, in transloading. Can you speak to that a little bit? I think you're talking about some of our crane investments, probably. We've, uh, we do have a, a, an, an extensive intermodal. We have a, over 50 terminals there. And a lot of these terminals have these large overhead cranes. So we've started re- replacing a large number of those. We're going to have around 19 replaced over the course of the, the year. Uh, some are diesel-electric hybrids. So they use around 75% less diesel fuel, which is 75% less emissions. Uh, you know, it helps nearby communities, not only from a, a air, air quality, but also from noise as well. And so those units actually capture energy as well when they're lowering lowering containers and they've got a backup generator that just powers on as needed uh, to recharge the batteries. Uh, but we're also looking at fully electric units as well. So any opportunities there are on the equipment front, uh, not just cranes, but other things as well, we're looking at alternative fuels uh, where it makes financial sense. So, I mean, what I've heard today is so far, there's, there's just a lot of things that you guys are doing, which is common you know, across the industry, but it's really, you know, really awesome to see so much happening inside one company, you know, even beyond, you mentioned earlier, the science-based target initiatives, which, um, you know, for those who aren't super familiar with how people are working towards getting or reducing emissions, um, there's a very strong and encouraging and even maybe not yet a formal standard, but um, a standard that is being used across the globe, which is saying you have to first measure what your emissions are, and then you've got to figure out smart ways to reduce those. And so it's awesome to see that you guys are adopting that as the first step in understanding how to reduce emissions. Behind that, I mean, the, the common phrase is um, reduce what you can and offset what you can't. You guys have a very interesting approach in that you have tracts of land that you are using to capture carbon and to reduce your footprint. Can you talk a little bit about how you use that to offset some of your emissions and do you have, like, do you, does that cover enough or do you end up going to the offset market as well? Yeah. So uh, Norfolk Southern and our predecessors have been involved in forestry going back over a hundred years now. 
you know, we transport a lot of uh, finished um, forestry products now. Used to transport a lot more raw material, uh, and some of that's come, coming back as well. And so we've been involved in forestry for some time, but really we started down getting involved in forest carbon, uh, one of the first U.S. companies to do so back around 2007, 2008, as those markets were starting to develop. We did one 10,000-acre uh, project. Uh, we, we registered that in California on the compliance market. And then we did another 10,000-acre project uh, with green trees. We like to call it our trees and trains project. And so this helped reforest land that was flooding. It was agriculture land, put it back in trees. And not only is it cleaning the air, uh, but it's also providing uh, wildlife habitat as well. It's providing flood control, all the benefits that forestry provides. So that's been, been a great initiative for us. And we're continuing to look at other opportunities as well on the forestry front. So to date, we've, uh, you know, there are two projects that have sequestered over 600,000 metric tons of CO2. Uh, they're adding another 80 to 100,000 metric tons a year now as the trees continue to grow. And so we think that's just a really a win-win process for us. As we develop these credits, we can either uh, utilize the credits to offset our own emissions, or we can uh, utilize those to provide offsets for customers if it's something that they're interested in. You know, well, one of the purposes of the show is obviously to give information um, and to inspire just people in general, but also to really um, have people talking not directly to their peers, but at least um, putting messages out that people can consume in the in the rail network. Um, it sounds like a lot of the class one or all the class one um, companies are, they understand the impact, they understand the opportunity, they understand the benefit. Um, you know, as you guys look together as a group, I think you mentioned that, you know, the associations that you're involved in, how do you collaborate? I mean, we always talk about this and it's a common question I have for folks is, it's a unique problem. It's not one that Norfolk Southern can solve on its own, um, but it's also everyone's, um, you know, historically, sometimes there's competitive advantages that you want to, that you want to keep guard. How do you balance that, that potential tension of understanding what opportunities are out there, ones that could give you a competitive advantage potentially, but also ones that are for the betterment of the, of really the whole world, um, we should be adopting more largely. Yeah, so at the association level, really a lot of the focus there is on, on research and policy. That's really what that group is really about, focusing on the Association of American Railroads. Uh, they're our legislative arm. They help. Uh, also, we operate a transportation technology center, you know, together as part of the AER uh, that's invest looking at technology. Uh, you know, had you had someone from uh, Too Simple on recently talking about autonomous trucks. We've been doing research as well on autonomous trains. You know, that started two years ago. And there's autonomous trains operating now, you know, in, in Australia going hundreds of miles. So really, it's a lot about what's the future going to look like, uh, what's current policy that's bad for the railroads or good for the railroads, but also what can we play as an industry uh, when it comes to climate change? You know, we, we do offer a low carbon solution that's more important to our customer base. How can we get our message out there? And also, how can we be more truck-like? You know, how can we give customers visibility into their shipments? How can they or order rail cars, uh, empties with their phone, just like you expect a delivery from Amazon. So that's kind of what we've done with the, the railroad industry is digitize it, make it more truck-like. Uh, you mentioned the bulk transfer facilities. You know, we've got a, over hundreds of bulk transfer facilities and you combine that with our inter intermodal network. Uh, you combine it with our new offering called Thoroughbred Freight Transfer, which does less than, less than truckload business. And it allows us to really compete with trucks uh, which is really the, the, where the marketplace is. And that's where the opportunity is. You know, we operate in the eastern United States. Uh, congestion isn't getting better if you've been out on the interstates uh, here recently. Uh, 
Uh, there's a lot more trucks, there's a lot more traffic, there's the driver shortage. Uh, and so uh, there's a great opportunity, we think, for the rail industry to be a, a part of more people's supply chain. How do you, do you feel like there's messaging around, you know, what is the perception of rail? Um, you know, I think when people think about rail, they think of car, car, or car loads full of, of coal, right, moving around um, the country. And obviously coal has its own stigma attached to it. Um, how do you how do you message around that? And what is the reality? Is that true? Or is it, um, you know, what's really going on? Yeah, I think it's when you start telling them who our customers are that they understand. When you talk about all the different automobile companies, we're not just moving the finished automobiles. We're moving the parts that go to those plants uh, that, that end up making their cars. You know, we're, we're moving the plastics. that go into all the things that, that, are, that are created from, from plastics. Uh, we're moving the steel that goes into making appliances. Um, you know, we're, our biggest customers, some of them are UPS and FedEx, Amazon, Home Depot, Lowe's. And so if it moves, chances are we're moving it <laughs> in combination with trucks. I mean, there's our supply chain partners, but we really think there's a huge opportunity out there in the marketplace with long distance trucking. There's so much product right now moving long distances, and I'm talking over a thousand miles. And that product, there's a lot of opportunity to move that over to, uh, over to rail. Uh, with our service levels of where they're getting to be at now, and also with the visibility that customers are expecting. You, you said service level, which I think is interesting because it was a question I was going to ask Texas. There is also this perception that, you know, that truck can be the quickest way to get goods from point A to point B. Um, can you talk a little bit about the service level and, you know, how, um, how rail can still maintain that level of service and how companies should think about what, how, how they should they go through the selection process, the filter process of understanding what types of shipments are appropriate for rail? Yeah, so there's a lot of flexible freight out there. And I think if you think about the rail industry, what we've done as an industry is it's become more of a scheduled system. It's more scheduled railroading. So you know if your shipment gets picked up by a certain time, you can you know exactly how many days to expect. Now, it may be uh, that you can do it four days by truck, but it may be six days by rail. But if you know that and that, can, that consistency is there, that customer lots of times will go with that solution. You know, it's cheaper. The rail solution is cheaper. And then now all of a sudden carbon's become a part of that equation as well. And so and we're starting to see some people, uh, you know, look at that as part of the logistics decisions. So providing consistent service, that's what the customers want. And that's what, that's what we're after. And we're about showing them the, um, the visibility in their supply chain shipments as well. Are you providing those types of, um, emission saving statistics up front for the folks who are using rail? We, uh, we launched our industry's first carbon calculator back in 2008. Uh, we're currently in the process of revamping that calculator now. That's on a public facing side. Uh, on the customer side, we are providing emissions data to our customers. Uh, not only does it show them what their emissions are on NS, but it also shows them what they're avoiding as well. Uh, you know, shipping that product via rail instead of truck. That's interesting. So it's, Sounds like your customers, um, they, they're finding that data even more valuable. I mean, we know that the pressure's um, coming down. Yeah, and I think that, that you mentioned science-based targets earlier, Danny. I think it's important to realize that, you know, we've got over 1,750 companies worldwide now that have committed to science-based targets initiative. Over 700 of those have been this year alone. And what that makes you do is not only measure your emissions, but then you have to, um, so for us, they're having to reach out. You know, their scope-free emissions are, are in their supply chain. And so they're having to reach out to their supply chain partners, understand what those emissions are, and now they're having to manage those emissions. 
So if, if your scope three emissions are 40% or greater than your scope one or two emissions, then you have to set a target for them as well. So that's one option is to, to manage those by setting a target. The second option is to get 65% of your supply chain to commit to science-based targets. And that's what we're starting to see now. We're, we're getting emails from uh, our customers basically giving their customers, you know, so much time, a limited amount of time to commit to science-based targets. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that uh, going forward in the next, next few years. So you make, just to walk through kind of the life cycle of that decision process, you, you're in, co- in consultation with your customers or even just your own internal stakeholders deciding to make science-based target initiatives and in, in, in setting those goals and understanding what the reduction targets are, communicating those to your customers and other stakeholders as well. And then um, you're continuing to give those updates back to them on, on where you meet your progress. That's right. That's right. We, we provide updates uh, annually through our CDP reporting, which is publicly available on our website. We've been reporting there since uh, 2009. And then our, so our progress on our own science-based targets will be reporting in our ESG report every year. What, what advice would you give to firms, whether it's in rail or just elsewhere, who are being confronted with these demands, um, or maybe these internal desires to report, um, what is the what is the first step? What does it look like? What does it feel like? You know, I, I always tell people sustainability is a journey. It's not a destination. And a lot of our customers, believe it or not, are just now starting their ESG and sustainability journey. So uh, we partner with a lot of them to provide that advice on how do you get started, where you go to, uh, which consultants should we consider uh, that can help us in this regard. So I think a lot of it is just figuring out, okay, where are we at now? But also what's important to our company? Every company is different. And so we've done this internally uh, through our, our sustainability council. So we've got 18 members from various departments and we focused on what are the areas that we want to focus on as a company. And that's going to be different. You know, it's going to be different for a bank. It's going to be different for, uh, you know, a Home Depot or a Lowe's or somebody like that. So we, we're going to focus on the things that we control, but also the things that are important to our stakeholders. And so a lot of that focus right now is around reducing emissions. That's awesome. Um, we really appreciate you coming on. Um, I'm sure the, those audience, the audience members who tune in regularly are happy to, to meet you more intimately. Um, we appreciate the support that you've given the show. Um, for folks who want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get in contact with you? The uh, best way is through uh, LinkedIn and also reach a lot of uh, resources available on Norfolk Southern's website on our sustainability page. Yeah, I echo that. There's great resources there. We're super excited to watch what is around the corner. You're continuing to put out amazing um, reports on things that are um, you're accomplishing there at Norfolk Southern. So um, we'll keep a close eye and we hope to have you back to talk about all the great things that you do. Yeah, thank you, Danny. Y'all keep up the great work as well. Thanks, there appreciate is over it. a trillion dollars of waste in supply chains today. The net zero carbon emission is something that corporates are taking very seriously. To meet these objectives, they're going to have to take into consideration CO2 emissions. 